This evening on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, in your week in IndyCar listener Q&A part one, got some great questions as usual, y'all, as we start to get a little bit comfortably into the offseason here. Thankfully and finally, news has slowed to a normal pace, waking up to my inbox now, this week in particular, to a more manageable trickle amount of press releases and whatnot so i'm really looking forward to that frankly with the year ending about a month plus later than usual uh, we're gonna be right back into the grind here shortly imsa kicks off its new season in january we will have indycar spring training and testing and all kinds of fun stuff and then we get going early in march so not much of an off season but i'm gonna try and get the absolute most out of it that i can and i hope that you do as well gonna say thank you as always to you for making this show possible with your awesome questions and ongoing love and support that you send in this little community that we have here uh, it it has a lot of meaning for me uh, i hope that whatever we do here also is something that you enjoy and makes you feel connected to a bigger and wider group of friends and family, some of which, many of which you probably don't know. But thank you nonetheless for sending in your questions and giving me and us uh, an opportunity each week to gather and convene more than once with all the questions been coming in, necessitating a part two. I'm going to say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Some of you might have read, uh, crossing over into Sunday night, we surpassed 2 million downloads for our podcast for the year. And it's it's just nuts. <laughs> it makes no sense to me at all. And uh, that's not a negative. It's just, it, yeah, I mean, I'll reiterate the thing you might have heard before. I'm just a son of a mechanic, y'all. I wasn't somebody who grew up in front of the TV and being in broadcast this that or the other or being in front of people i mean i'm just a, a guy uh from san mateo california who loves racing and gets a chance to do things in it and talking to y'all is one of them but the fact that two million downloads have happened this year which is a all-time record never happened before uh last year for the entirety of 2019 obviously being all 12 months we had 1.6 million downloads, and to not only pass that, but do it with a month and a half left this year, it's it's just insane. So I think also by December, mid-December maybe, we should reach 6 million downloads total since we kicked off the show in May of 2016. Just another little thing too, which happened to pop up on my Facebook memories today was Two years ago today, I sent out a thank you to everyone for having reached 2 million downloads. So from May of 2016 through November, whatever this is, uh, 17th, 16th, 17th of 2018, it took, what, two and a half-ish years to generate 2 million? And it's pretty crazy to think that in the following two years, we've put up almost 4 million so just thank you. Just before we start the show 
and this is coming back to the topic of community. Uh, we are dedicating this show, and I'm going to try and remember to dedicate everything else, uh, at least uh, spoken, but it is certainly dedicated uh, from the heart with everything that we're doing to one of our listeners, Lynn Henderson Gale. We are very fortunate, I consider uh, myself to be very fortunate to have uh, a number of very active women who listen to our show in a sport that is so often thought of as all male. It's I take great pride in the fact that we have um, some really engaged uh, women who listen to the show, participate, send in questions, and are just, it's awesome. It makes me so happy. Um, Lynn sent a note a couple days ago, and I'm just going to read this to you and try not to cry. Um, but we're dedicating this show to her and to her husband, Jim. Uh, she wrote in to say, MP, I don't know if you remember when I sent a comment in about my husband downloading the podcasts, and we would listen to them on the go when we traveled. We also listen to them during our evening meals or Sundays at breakfast. My husband, Jim Gale, passed away on November 7th, 2020, here in Indy, of complications to COVID-19 after 17 days in the hospital. says, I know that sometimes you don't think your podcasts mean anything to anyone, but I'm here to tell you they do. These are memories I will cherish sitting with my husband and listening to the different drivers, Mike Hull, Kara Adams from Firestone, Mike Shank, your French fry, Sebastian Bourdais, and Robin Miller, just to name a few. It's just a dumb little thing we do here, Lynn. I'm so thankful for you. Um, I can't even process. Uh, I cannot even process what you are going through. It is my greatest fear. There is nothing that scares me more. And there's no demon in my mind that I have to fight more often than the one that causes me to worry about my wife and her survival. So I know what that fear is like, but I don't know what losing your your spouse, what you, losing your husband is like. So I can just... I think speak for everyone, all of us in this little fun thing that we do, all of the listeners, uh, you, Lynn Henderson Gale, you are someone who we appreciate, care for, been thinking about you a lot since you sent this in, and you are part of our prayers, my wife and I. So usually try and open the show on something fun and up, but you know what? Sometimes life doesn't give us fun. And so just wanted to let you know, Lynn, that we care about you. And we are obviously dedicating this show to you and Jim. And I hope, I hope that as you keep waking up and keep adjusting to life without him, I hope that we can, I don't know, make you laugh, make you something. We're here. Please don't, please do not think we aren't. So send in whatever questions you might, might tell us what we can do uh, to help you. And I know that you have a lot of people who uh, will, will gladly and would gladly do whatever they need to, to reach out and make sure you're okay and help you 
live a new life without Jim. So thank you, Jim, for being part of this family. Thank you, Lynn, for being part of this family. And thanks to all of you who are listening, who I'm sure are going to uplift her and her family as they head into a, what I have to imagine, a rather hard holiday season. So let's get going. We're not going to do sound bed because it just doesn't fit. Um, But we are going to get rolling here and say thank you again to everyone that makes this show possible. And where are we going to lead off first with questions? Fittingly, we're going to go with Daniel Mack and Hrishi Deshpande. Questions about the W Series and the road to Indy and female drivers. Uh, Daniel opened saying, Marshall, after listening to last week's podcast, with Catherine Bond Meir, what impact do you think the W Series has had on women, on female drivers looking at the road to Indy? Do you think that a collaboration would lead to a uh, W Series racing, maybe giving prize money towards a light drive? Do you think that, uh, driving Indy lights, do you think that would be a good thing? Um, Catherine Bond Meir, by the way, she is the CEO of the W Series, did a uh, catching up with episode with her, which I really enjoyed. That went up last week if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. I think the W Series could be a very powerful partner with the Road to Indy and IndyCar specifically, Daniel. In speaking with Catherine at the end of our interview, she mentioned having a great interest in connecting with the folks at IndyCar at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, having a true desire for the W series to have a presence at Indy. I don't know if she's thinking, you know, we didn't get too far into that desire, but, uh, there's a goal there. And, uh, although I was many days behind in doing it, um, sent a connecting email between herself and one of the senior leaders of IndyCar and IMS to get them talking. And so I can tell you that on a personal level, I have the greatest of hopes, as I noted at the bottom of that email connecting them, that these organizations would find common ground, work together, and do so for the betterment of all of us. Where, Whether it's contributing money, Daniel, assuming that they have enough money to do so, uh, if it's contributing money to fund the next W Series champion to spend a season in Indy Lights. Uh, I mean, that'd be amazing, first of all, but um, where I think the biggest value would come from is if we look at what IndyCar has announced with its Race for Equality and Change program, and as some have mentioned repeatedly and accurately, it delves pretty hard into the ethnicity side of trying to create representation really isn't much that's been said or written about trying to balance the scales or at least make the scales less imbalanced in terms of creating opportunities for women as drivers, engineers, team owners, all every aspect. So I'm not saying that the race for equality and change does not want to assist in bringing more women into open wheel racing in the variety of roles that I mentioned. 
just saying that if we're talking an emphasis to start, it certainly is more ethnicity-based than gender-based. This, I would think, could be an area where the W series is primely positioned to help address. We do nothing but work on the advancement of women in motor racing. It's the core of what we do. So how about we connect with you and help provide some direction, possibly some talent, some something. So there is a pipeline. That is the thing that is going to end up demonstrating the greatest value, Daniel, for the W Series. Uh, as we know, if we look at the road to Indy and Indy Lights, what is the greatest benefit uh, each year that comes out of Indy Lights? It's that million-dollar advancement prize. Now it's 1.2, but it's that advancement prize that guarantees the champion is going to be seen, heard, and felt in IndyCar at minimum in three or four races. Amazing to have the W Series creating champions. It already has one in Jamie Chadwick. She's had some opportunities, but I would say not enough since winning that title in 2019. Is it? Am I pointing any fingers at the series? Or no, new series really didn't have a whole lot of cachet. Something where everyone worldwide was looking in to see which young woman won and we're going to just take her and drop her into something huge to drive afterwards. The series has gained status uh, since 2019. But the fact is Jamie is someone who, uh, as I mentioned to the folks that I connected uh, between Jamie and Alice Powell, who finished runner up, uh, these are two women who are the most turnkey highest developed, ready to go to move straight into Indy Lights and potentially then move right up to IndyCar. As we talk about the next young women, where are they going to come from? Where are they going to, where are we going to find them and develop them on the road to Indy? We discussed last week. There are a lot of names, but there's, a lot of lead time and development needed in many cases before we talk about IndyCar. I would say that if a deal by chance was arrived at between the W Series and IndyCar and a Jamie or Alice or Jamie and Alice found themselves in Indy Lights rides in 2021, of course they'd have tons of learning to do, uh, all manner of things to learn, but they have the kind of talent that I'm confident could have one or both of them in IndyCar by 2022. So we don't know who's going to follow, right? We have this next championship coming up in 2021, uh, second season for W Series. A lot of women there who I think could be serious badasses, but that's a fun part about having to run the season, right? Find out who emerges or who confirms they are next up. And the couple that will be ready to go as well, just like we have every year in Indy Lights. So-and-so might be the champion, but guess what? There's usually a second-place and a third-place driver that's also ready to go. So this is where I think impact can be had. We'd love to see the women coming out of the W Series going to F1, biggest possible profile in racing in the world. 
I can just tell you, I don't know if that feels feasible right now uh, in the short term of a door opening and it being a quality opportunity in that young woman, you know, how many amazing formula one drivers, George Russell is toiling away at Williams right now, fighting over last place with his teammate. I don't believe any of us have any doubt that that kid dropped into a Red Bull, a Mercedes, a whomever, it never leaves the top five. As so card dependent, and sorry, I'm really struggling to speak. It's so card dependent in F1. Chances of any young driver, male or female, is dictated by where they land. Here in IndyCar, we know. In Indy Lights, we know. Uh, big opportunities are awaiting because the car itself is not the uh, determining factor. So opportunity, big opportunity here, Daniel. And thank you for, for sending this in. I thought this is a great way to start the show. We tend to do a little bit of a deeper dive on a subject out the gates. Uh, Hrishi as well as something says, Hey, Marsh on the subject of women on the road to Indy ladder. It seems like NASCAR is a compl- uh, comparatively strong female presence in its ladder series. You mentioned Haley Deegan, Natalie Decker, etc. What gives? Um, just is it the cost difference of say getting started in ARCA or late models versus say USF 2000 or something else? I mean, fair point, Harishi. You name two, you know, um, I mean, two is better than zero. I mean, we had, I guess, technically half, uh, Saber Cook, who did about half a season this year in the road to Indy, if that, she was the only woman competing there. So, Two is better than 0.5, but it's not as if NASCAR is sitting on a like really healthy, strong female presence in this latter series. Quality is there. I'm just saying the numbers aren't there. And ultimately, the numbers game is what the variety of diversity uh, programs are meant to address. Not having one, right? Hey, you know, I saw someone... What was it? I read somewhere someone was commenting about, well, so much for the diversity problem in racing, Lewis Hamilton's seven-time champion, to which many folks piled on and said, he's the only one. (laughs) He's the only one. You know, uh, only one in Formula One ever. Uh, we have no black drivers at IndyCar, as you know. We've obviously got Antron Brown, the NHRA, which is awesome. Got Bubba Wallace and NASCAR, it's awesome. But again, it's the whole, well, we've got one kind of mindset where you go, you just don't understand what, what we're talking about here. Uh, I would love nothing more than to walk through the average IndyCar grid before a race and see six women 10 women, 12 women on the grid, half the grid being women. Cause I don't know. That's kind of like earth, right? Kind of half and half of the earth is men and the other half is women. So would it be crazy? You know, again, y'all probably heard me go on about this before, but I hear what you're saying about NASCAR. There are certainly some women who are at a higher stage of career development and growth and moving on up than we have on the road to Indy slash IndyCar would tell you that, yes, it is absolutely easier for a young driver, be it young woman or young whomever, to try and pursue their dreams in NASCAR because it's better known. 
easier, not easy, but easier if we're talking about, hey, I'm looking for money to go do something. A quality young woman who has an interest in NASCAR is going to capture the attention of a crazy number of people. Whereas that same woman expressing an interest to go to IndyCar while running in carts or Formula Ford, Formula F 1600 or some other kind of lower development category, it's going to peak by comparison, nobody's interest. Uh, there aren't going to be companies, major manufacturers getting behind these women. Um, it just hasn't been a thing. So I'm going to close on this real quick and just mention something else. Um, Team Chevy does some pretty amazing stuff in IndyCar and all the other places where it races. Honda, Honda Performance Development Accurate does the same thing. Uh, we know that there are factory-affiliated drivers. We know that in some cases, maybe more sports car right now than anything, but also in IndyCar, and I have to assume NASCAR as well, there are some who are tied directly to manufacturers, some whose paychecks are written. When that direct deposit shows up every two weeks, it's from name one of the variety of big manufacturers. Um, those manufacturers, talking IndyCar and other series too, but those manufacturers are often fairly active in spotting young talent, trying to groom it, trying to place it, trying to do something. Uh, I look at a Haley Deegan and say, wow, the relationship that she has with Ford and Ford being so seemingly hardcore in support of her, wanting to advance her career, wanting to develop her to the highest possible state of capabilities, uh, whether it's the on-track driving part, the career coaching, media and PR, engineering, all these things. They have taken such a huge, huge role in taking this young woman from the desert in Southern California and rocketing her up the NASCAR ladder, obviously based on her skills, right? They're not just pushing her up regardless, but... She's demonstrated skill at each level. That Ford relationship has been a life changer for Haley, right? Um, just speaking out loud here, it's really awesome to see what Roger Penske and his team want to do with the race for equality and change. Wouldn't it be amazing if we learned that, say, a Team Chevy highlighted a young woman coming up the ladder and said, Hey, you're uh, you want to be part of team Chevy. We want you to be in the Indy 500 provided you have the skills and these, everything happens the way that we hope it will, but we see talent, want to develop it. We want you to be part of our team and we want to make this happen. Imagine if Honda did the same. Um, I'm, thinking of the highest profile woman in IndyCar right now. What is her name? Might be wrong, might disagree disagree with me, but I would suggest it might be Kara Adams, right? Head of race tire engineering 
for Firestone. I mean, she's <laughs> she's a, a genuine celebrity uh, for being not only good at her job, great at her job, but also for being a leader, a recognized leader beyond just the job title she has in her behavior, in the respect she earns, right? She's a star. She's a baller. She's amazing. Would say that Firestone's racing program as well, led by an equally kick-ass woman by the name of Lisa Boggs. Um, Would it be crazy to suggest Firestone might get involved in trying to help develop another young, talented woman? Trying to think of all the major players and supporters involved. What if NTT Data, official sponsor of the NTT IndyCar Series, were to contribute and pitch in? What if, run down the line, all the major players and participants with financial stakes in the series were to raise their hand and say, hey, why don't we join in here and do something that is good for all of us? This is going to make the sport better, more inclusive. In theory, bring more eyeballs to it, realizing that, hey, IndyCar's really got this cool community, (laughs) this village trying to raise multiple women towards prominence, athletic prominence and respect and inspiration. Imagine instead of it just being RP and Bud Denker and Mark Miles and Doug Bowles, all part of this single group that owns and runs the series trying to do it. Imagine if the partners got involved too and said, hey, count on us for one. Hey, count on us for one. Maybe it's a scholarship, uh, two indie lights, two, again, a lot of different variables here, but this is the thing that comes to mind quite often, friends. Hey, we could do a thing that helps one person, one thing. Or imagine if two or three or four or five people came together and then all of a sudden, we are making things better twofold, threefold, fourfold, fivefold. Coming back to the central premise, it's a numbers game. It's amazing. Lewis Hamilton is a six time Formula One world champion. Seven time? I forget. Seven? It's ridiculous, however many numbers it is. But the fact that there's one black guy, like, yeah, problem isn't solved. Um, we have problem to solve here a real problem (laughs) a genuine problem indycar is absolutely leaving half of a potential audience just completely unrepresented uh it makes no sense so imagine if all the key players said yeah uh instead of pinning our hopes on one woman to maybe come up the ladder and maybe get to indycar imagine if there were four or five just really uplifted and valued and developed and we start changing things that's crazy so uh thanks for the opening question y'all let's go to ed joris says stipulating that indy cars are too damned heavy for what they are which they are i have three mass saving suggestions that you can feel free to ridicule 
First of all, remove the pneumatic air jacks. Instead, we go to an F1-style manual jacking system. Two, make the fuel cells smaller. More pit stops are better. And with a hybrid system, they should not need as much fuel, and the space savings would be a logical place to put some of the hybrid paraphernalia. Let's put the big battery and super electric stuff next to the fuel. Got it, Ed. Uh, And then third, smaller tires. Go ahead, shoot them all down. I'll think of more. Uh, I mean, there's not some of the ideas I don't super disagree with. Um, the pneumatic air jacks and, you know, systems, right? So you've got the jacks themselves. It's usually, what, three to four? Am I totally forgetting on how many? I think so. Um, it's three, I believe. Uh, why, boy, I am in bad shape. But I actually got okay sleep last night. I've got no excuses here. None. Zero. Um, they don't weigh that much. Now, granted, you have the steel braided lines that run from the front of the car to the back of the car to the jacking point, so that's some extra weight as well. I'm guessing we're talking, and I'm just trying to think of the ones that I had on my car, last car, which were, it was a sedan, so they were bigger and beefier. Um, heck, I don't know. What are we talking, 15 pounds maybe uh, at most? They're pretty light. So I don't know if that's a real go here, Ed, just because... Yeah, it's not that much weight. And we're talking about needing to knock 150, 200 pounds off. So um, might not do that one. Make the fuel cells much smaller. Uh, I mean, that changes everything else, right? So if we are now talking about pit stops every, I don't know, 20 laps instead of 50, 30, 40, whatever it is, wherever we happen to be, if we're now cutting... The duration, they're already small at, what, 18 and a half gallons, I think? I mean, if you make them smaller, I mean, 14 isn't going to do much at 7 pounds per gallon. You know, we've just, I realize we've saved 30 pounds or whatever the number is, but um, it's not crazy. Uh, I mean, you'd really have to cut them in half if we want to talk about a significant weight savings. And so then we're talking about 75-ish pounds, maybe 80 pounds. Uh, of of less fuel on board that'd be big but also uh, i guess in theory i'm not sure what we do with tires do we cut the tire bills slightly um or do they go even harder and just whatever tire conservation is just out the window and so tires are just treated like like a soft drink man you just knock it back crush it and throw it away um that's a good question there. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally against this one, but part of the fun for hashtag me personally is over a normal fuel stint, road course, oval, whatever, is watching the expertise of drivers manage the resources that they have. So if it's the fuel cell getting less fuel in it because of fuel consumption and the chassis balance changing tires being used more front and rear, whatever it might be. I mean, part of this fun stuff is seeing how drivers deal with the changing handling of their cars that often can make a driver strong in one half of a stint and weak in the other or vice versa. Um, I fear that if you shorten that up too much and the stints are now really short, that we lose that. We don't see as much passing. 
And yeah, and also for talking fuel saving, which I know very few people love that, but that's also a component of doing your job well in IndyCar. And if you're stopping constantly, um, I mean, of course, someone can save some fuel, but it's just probably going to be a nominal amount that might not make that much of a difference. So just saying the this change, while if we go half size, could certainly save a decent amount of weight. I think it also might change the racing so much that I don't know if a lot of folks would love that. Uh, let's see. Smaller tires. Um, smaller how? Diameter? Width? Uh, who knows? I mean, this is something to think about for sure, but uh, tire weight isn't a huge thing. Obviously, you need a wheel, uh, and that weighs something. So in theory, you might be able to go to something a little bit smaller there. Uh, that helps because it's that good old weight that is sitting out there rotating. That's a spinning mass. So yeah, that might, that might not be a quote bad thing, but, um, yeah, think of some more, uh, did I shoot them down or did I kind of half of them? Oh no, but I appreciate you putting thought into that. Ed, our pal, Daniel Summersgill says with the odd decision for the FI formula three, series to have a round at circuit of the americas next season is it likely that indycar teams will send representatives to watch for potential new talent at these races um and is it an opportunity they wouldn't normally get or do they tend to focus purely on u.s series only i think it would be very strange daniel for anyone from indycar to send someone dakota to scout talent as we have happened so often uh, it's either word of mouth. It is contact that already takes place between that driver and a team or their manager and a team, or in this day and age streaming. If you really do want to see how young so-and-so from Luxembourg <laughs> is doing in the whatever championship, you're probably going to be able to, to Google that quickly and go find it on YouTube and have some fun or wherever else. So Yeah just say the the overriding thought here daniel would be one of if there is a kid that's doing something big uh it'll be known about it won't be secret and also knowing how modern day indycar works with so few paying opportunities available at the moment uh if the kid isn't bringing a big wedge of cash with them you know unless they're just breaking records and doing something that no one's ever seen before more or less they're not going to be something that IndyCar teams would actually fly down just to scout. If there was a meeting arranged in advance, hi, we have an interest in going to IndyCar and would like to talk to you about it, whether it's at the event or the kid and his or her father, mother, manager, whomever flying up to Indy or wherever the team might be based, uh, that might be the thing that is a little more likely. Uh, Daniel Ingleton. How you doing, Daniel? Hi, Marshall. How many of the 2021 entries do you think will be paid or are paying for the privilege to be in those seats? It feels, unsurprisingly, considering COVID, that there is even more expectation on driver sponsors than ever before. Uh, and also ask how hard do teams try to have their own in-house sponsors to be able to have a more open choice on drivers? Wouldn't this be a better position for them? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it would, Daniel. Uh, without a doubt, this is the thing that every single team wants. Uh, 
Um, um, let me just pull open the uh, the entry list here. I'm looking at... Okay. I cannot think of a single team in IndyCar that wants a paying driver. There are extremely a lot, a whole heck of a bunch who need to take a paying driver. But if we're talking actually wanting a paying driver, uh, that would be 0% of all IndyCar team owners. And that's not because they don't like drivers who pay for the privilege. It's because, to your exact point, they all want to be able to hire who they want. Some of those could be people that bring that are currently or will be bringing money. Um, but yes, this is the difference between being able to dictate your future 100% on your own terms versus we have been unable to find the sponsorship that we need to be able to go out and hire the person uh, or people that we would want to drive for us. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you asked how many, etc. Let me just look at this here. Uh, at AJ Foyt Enterprises, there will be two drivers next year. We know Sebastian Bourdais is one of them. He is being paid. We don't know who the other driver or drivers will be. It, if we follow recent trends, kind of safe to say they will be paying for the opportunity. If we look at Andretti slash Andretti Harding Steinbrenner Autosport slash Andretti Herda Autosport with Marco Andretti and Kerr Bagajanian, we know that of that matrix, James Hinchcliffe, who we think will be in the 26 car next year, he is certainly paying for that opportunity bringing sponsors with him. Uh, Rossi paid, Hunter Ray paid, Herda paid, Marco paid. So there you go. Um, and if the team had sponsorship to fund the 26 car all on their own, uh, there's nothing saying that they would not hire Mr. Hinchcliffe. So James, though, as we know, has a has multiple sponsors, and that's pretty good. Uh, let's see. Aero McLaren SP, both drivers paid. Carlin Racing, Max Chilton, obviously his father, Graham Chili Chilton, is the longstanding and well-known financial engine behind the team, uh, co-owner, however it should be phrased. Uh, we know that Max is there because money is brought for him to be there. It's no disrespect. It's just what it is. Uh, Connor Daly. Being there, we seem to recall, is being paid. Um, Chip Ganassi Racing, we know that Marcus Erickson brings uh, some form of financial package with him. So while I'm sure he is being paid for his driving services, there is a package that comes with him uh, to help make that seat possible. Scott Dixon, paying. Sorry, there's a little bit of humor. Uh, Scott Dixon, eh, he's paid to drive the car. Uh, after that, and again, weird, Jimmy Johnson paying. We know that he's brought Carvana with him, uh, and there will be other sponsors announced as well. And Alex of the Polo Tribe, hashtag Max Outlap, um, a.k.a. the Barista, I don't actually know how all that 
is working out. Uh, I didn't ask, and I don't know if I will, but uh, we know that his sponsor, uh, his man, Kazumichi Go, brought money for him to be at Coin last season. Mr. Go is not part of things this year, as Alex told us, or this coming year, but uh, I'm not sure how this got paid for, so I have to say I don't really know on that end. Uh, Dale Coin. Uh, in both instances, money is brought. We already spoke about Alex. We know that money is brought for Santino to drive. Don't believe it's a big amount, but it's money nonetheless. Uh, Ed Carpenter Racing. Uh, Ed Carpenter, I believe, uh, he gets paid by his boss, so that's good. Uh, Connor, we do know, brings sponsors with him. And Renus, we know, brings sponsors with him. Uh, I think, I mean, granted... We know that from what is brought that they get paid. That's the instant. That's the case with every driver. Uh, if they're bringing money, that's also how they pay themselves. Whether that's money just taken directly from the lump sum or whatever it is that they have, or it's brought to the team and the team in turn pays them out of it. That's all up to how people work the contracts. But you know, I believe Connor, assuming he's back with Ed Carpenter Racing, hoping that he will. That. He will earn a decent living. Uh, have heard that Renus will be earning a, a solid living this coming season, so that's all pretty amazing. Uh, Jack Harvey, uh, as we've mentioned before in the show, he is very close friends with uh, the folks at AutoNation, part of uh, the funding package there. So I don't know how you present that. Is he bringing money, or is he driving for the team where uh, one of his close allies is you know, half sponsor of the entry i don't know how you phrase that but there you go elio is bringing any money and is certainly being paid as is jack uh ray hall letterman lanigan racing graham ray hall certainly being paid also a a big participant in finding sponsors for his own car so that's an aptitude that he has takuma we know brings some money with him um again i certainly he's paid as well uh, would the Ray Hollerman Lanigan racing team hire him if he brought no money, whether it's Honda, Panasonic, or whatever else? Don't know. It's a good question to ask. And then we get to Team Penske, and we know that across the board for all of their full-time drivers, they're all paid. So I didn't keep track of what number are paid and which aren't. Maybe you can uh, add that up and respond, Daniel. But yeah, uh, in every instance every team would want to have adequate sponsorship to pick and choose who they want. Uh, Todd Dostal. Hey, Todd, have you sent stuff in before? If so, I apologize for forgetting. And if not, thanks for uh, first time. So I keep forgetting to ask about this since gateway. So as I noticed with the road, uh, road course short over rear wings, the numbers became bigger and more centered on the wing. Uh, was this a Roger Penske change or what is the cause? I absolutely love it personally says keep up the great work as always um i think we might just be talking about the difference todd in big rear wing end plates and the smaller ones used in super speedway form uh, of which we don't see that often so i think that's really about it um i can't tell you whether roger caused that change or not because i haven't tracked the exact timeline when this thing you're mentioning started happening uh let's see well, we, uh, we were being visited here by a dignitary, the president of social media. 
Uh, hello, Marshall. I hope all is well. Thank you. It is. We know the IndyCar series is trying to improve its super speedway product, but will IndyCar do anything for its short oval program? I mean, I know that we only have one short oval next year, sad to say, but is there any attempt to try and work on things? I don't know of anything now, uh, Mr. President, but this is yet another item for me to reach out and inquire about. Uh, it's a bit of a generic question. So if, is there a problem, for example, where you go, oh boy, this is really bad. Or is this just kind of a, Hey, are you going to work on that too, for the sake of working on it? So I can ask, but it would certainly help if I had a little bit more direction on the genesis of the question. Uh, let's go to salmon speed from Reddit. I certainly don't recognize that name. So, uh, fast fish. Woohoo. Hey, Marshall, I'm just wondering what the process of IndyCar selecting tracks is. I bring this up with tracks like Chicago and Kentucky losing NASCAR dates with no NASCAR at these tracks to the prospects of racing at these tracks look more attractive to IndyCar and the Penske group. I just took a tiny sip of what was remaining in my coffee mug. My New Day coffee mug, by the way. Uh, well, I don't know if I would attach NASCAR being at or not being at an oval as something that makes IndyCar say, hey, they're not there. Now we should be. I would say the, the bigger thing would be, one, since many of the ovals in the country are owned by NASCAR, uh, that could be a question mark as to whether NASCAR would want them to race at some of those tracks, and I'm not talking anyone specifically, but there's that, uh, and then there's SMI. So they own a lot of the other ovals. And, yeah, um, NASCAR being or not being somewhere, I don't know if that's going to really jump out. Obviously, if NASCAR was at a track and it was hugely popular and the grandstands were full and they chose to not go, that might pique IndyCar's curiosity because in theory although it's for stock car racing not indycar there's a really big and active fan base that's now no longer being served with a top tier racing series so that might be something to step into but if we're talking about places that haven't necessarily been knocking it out with fans ticket sales all kinds of things uh showing up to a lukewarm market for NASCAR where things haven't exactly been awesome and then trying to hold an IndyCar race sounds like a recipe for failure. So the overriding point, though, is IndyCar needs more ovals. So they're going to have to come up with some sort of approach where they add a couple back, balance things out a bit on the calendar, and do it somewhere where it's sustainable, uh, something where... You know, they can do it, and it's not going to be political nonsense of who owns it and doesn't want to let them in, or, you know, uh, that's the tough thing. If only IndyCar owned many, you know, five, six, seven ovals, then we would be worrying about this, but they don't. Uh, Jim Johnstone says, Hey, Marshall, knowing that historically Canadian rounds tend to be fairly well attended, do you know if there are any ovals in Canada big enough to host an IndyCar race? I do not, Jim. I know of some smaller ones. Uh, what is it? The Pinty's NASCAR something or other series. 
uh, I get the press releases. Actually, I haven't, I haven't gotten them for a while from uh, from our man, uh, good old Alex Tagliani. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it. I might have unsubscribed or uh, created a filter to send those to junk mail. So, sorry, Tag. Um, I don't, if we're talking big enough, I'm sure that there's lots of half-mile, three-quarter, five-eighths, and otherwise. We know that San Air back in the day is a place that uh, held IndyCar races and also uh, about the only time San Air uh, is ever referenced, if it even still exists, is the damage done to uh, Rick Mears' feet. But, yeah, I'm not aware of a, call it, high-profile, suitable type 1, one and a half, two whatever mile oval in Canada. So if there is and or are... I can't wait for our Canadian listeners to say, hey, you dummy, we got them over here, and this is its name, or their name. So, there you go. Eli Hoopengarner. Hey there, Eli. Marshall, you are tasked with creating a new set of regulations to allow IndyCar to race safely on FIA Grade 3 circuits. What do you do? And he closes with a hashtag Nordschleife Firestone GP. Uh, Yeah, that would be fun. What do I do? Um... I think we do. We go bumper cars. That's it, right? We hire Delara naturally. No, we hire a Red Bull Advanced Technologies makers of the fine aero screen to create, like you have when you go to the carnival or state fair and spend the buck or whatever to do the little bumper cars routine that have the the rail that goes all the way around the cars that do the bumping i think that's what we do so it's actually not modifying any fia grade whatever circuit because that part would be really expensive it's having them come up with basically safer barrier that goes all the way around the cars so the cars are already rectangular they'd be really rectangular right now uh the outside of the wheels and everything would be enclosed so that you got that haven't really thought through the how you remove the safer barrier segment that's right in front of the tires to do tire changes but that's what you do because modifying tracks yeah seemingly nobody has money for that and there's a lot of tracks if the cars themselves come with the safer barrier equipped to them in theory we could go race just about anywhere. Uh, our pal Joey of the Priuses says, what's the worst racetrack you've ever been to, either an IndyCar or any other racing series you've worked in? Wow. Boy, I'm trying to make sure that my parking pass requests or wherever it is at future races are now in jeopardy. Hey there, Joey. Uh, where have I been that have been just... I, I suffer from a problem, Joey, where uh, I'm pretty happy with most of the places that I go to, and it's because I love the racing. So I know for a fact that it makes me not see things as clearly and to spot all the things that are bad as some others. I mention that part because there are some people of the tr- in the traveling IndyCar troop uh probably a number of them on the media who are just always complaining 
always complaining, whether it's the quality of hotels, the distance of the track from wherever they're staying, the quality of the food, the restaurants, the lack of catering in the media center because somehow us willfully taking a job where traveling is required means when we get to the place to do our work, people should give us food. I never really fully understand that. Always appreciate it when they do, but never been a, like, you owe me something type deal. Um, But that's more just experiential than the track itself is terrible. Uh, Wow. I really should have a better memory for some of these things. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to run my mind through all these things, and I'm like, no, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this, Joey. I, I mean, there are, again, if it's track, yeah, I mean, most of them have to be upholding to some sort of minimal level of quality, which tends to be pretty darn high. It's more the surroundings. It's more the places where you go, that's just an armpit, right? The track itself might actually be the the saving grace of the uh, of the trip. Um, I know a lot of people complain about Detroit and Belle Isle. I have stayed in some fine, like, hey, I appreciate you taking down the crime scene tape and pulling up the uh, the out the the scrubbing out the blood and the chalk outline of the body off the carpet of the room I'm staying in. And I don't want to say I don't necessarily mind some of those places as long as there's no bed bugs. Um, uh, I'm pretty good, but uh, I lived for a decent amount of time at the bottom of Hate Street, not H-A-T-E, H-I-G-H-T, in San Francisco. Um, Lived, you know, we're talking... Rough, very rough. Um, yeah, right across the street. It was the intersection of Hate and Page, and it was all day, all night. You know, gunfire, prostitution, drug sell, sales, you name it. And uh, I'm not saying that was like super happy, but. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. It was like, this is where I live. This is what I can afford, just like everyone else here, because this is all they can afford, because few people willingly live in uh, constant chaos. But just saying that might have seasoned me a little bit, Joey, so that when I'm going and staying uh, in a rough part of Detroit where, you know, truly gunfires going off and police and whatever. Like, I'm not saying that makes me smile, but it's not like a, Oh my God, I need to go find some fine upstanding place where, I mean, uh, so there's that. So I know that a lot of people don't like going to Detroit because of all the things that they think are unsavory and, uh, maybe not bugging me too much. Um, and I've stayed at a lot of places that are like, you know, there's only one time, I think I might've mentioned this in the show before, uh, could have been my first year or second year going to the Vancouver IndyCar event, uh, with one of the, uh, the Cameron McGee 
team owned by Steve Cameron and Jim McGee. Um, I forget. I don't remember where we stayed, but I just told them after the first night, like, yeah, this isn't going to work. I mean, it was like whatever I just mentioned for the crime scene type joint in Detroit that I've stayed at. Yeah, this was like human beings. Would you would not keep animals in this room, much less human beings. It was so destroyed and so disgusting. So yeah, I've had that happen once. And then oddly enough, the attempt to do something really nice when I went to Le Mans in 2008 with Aston Martin and they had this massive chateau that they rented for like, I don't know, the CEO of something or of Aston or whatever. And there was this meant to be kind of side houses on the estate and the one that they said, well, this is for you. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, Cause I don't know, man, I've never had that stuff before in life. So I was like, whoa, this is, a, this is incredible. Thank you. Uh, and quickly found out that back in the 1800s or whenever this was built in this beautiful French Chateau, the support stuff. Yeah. This was either where they kept livestock or I don't know, uh, did their butchery or something. Um, yeah. So it was very old and it wasn't very well sealed. Like the front door, there's just a big gap. Uh, the windows are gaps all over. Just walked in and was like, huh, this is a little breezy-ish, more open than I expected, but hey, uh, give it a try. They must know what they're doing. Um, and again, it could have been servants' quarters. I don't know what it was 100-plus years ago, but I can tell you that when I felt about the ninth thing kind of uh, go a little skittering across me and turn on the light and saw that in this, it's just a bedroom a small little bedroom with a uh, walk right into the, the bathroom. I don't think there was even a door on it flicked on the light and the walls, which were white looked like it was salt and pepper. And it was a, a zillion different bugs all over everywhere, all over the bed, under the bed, beneath the sheets on the pillow, crawling on me, crawling all over the place. And I've gotten better with dealing with bugs over the years, Joey. Don't know if this was a place I was at yet, though, in 2008. So it was a ah, uh, packed up my stuff after being in the room for an hour, and I think went and slept in the car, and said called when I got to the track the next morning, saw the fine people from Aston Martin uh, racing, and said, "I know everything you just tried to do was to give your guest in me this amazingly beautiful, opulent thing." Um, and I guarantee you that the CEO of the company or whomever is in the big, beautiful Chateau house is enjoying that completely. Can we go find the cheapest, crappiest little hotel for me in town center at Lamont or wherever else? Because I can't stay in the room because I am one of about a thousand guests. <laughs> and, uh, some of them bite, some of them don't, some of them are just creepy, um, uh, so amazing race. It wasn't about the, the track itself, but yeah, that one, uh, I'm never going to forget that trip, Joey. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tim Vaughn, biggest question of the episode, Marshall, I didn't used to worry about this, but now I can't stop pondering it. How long is a piece of string? There we go. That's the little uh, explanation I use sometimes when people ask open-ended questions and 
not that it matters, but the first time that little thing was thrown back at me was by an Australian mechanic. And I don't remember what the question was that I asked, but it was, again, one of those open-ended things that really didn't have an answer. And he just said, hey, mate, how long is a piece of string? To which I said, uh, I don't know. To which he said, uh, neither do I, to your question. And I was like, oh, that's a really good way of answering that. Um, Simon Rafi, is any engine development happening these days? Are the engine specs frozen? Well, these days, my friend, they are indeed happening. There was an agreement between Chevrolet and the Honda to dial back uh, on this and not spend themselves into insanity knowing that a new engine formula is coming. But yes, there is still absolute development going on. And we certainly witnessed this year that there was uh, what appeared to be a pretty big jump by Honda. Granted, they've won three manufacturer championships in a row, so it's not like they were in a bad place and then just got to a good place. But, uh, yeah, there is development happening. It's just uh, not so much in the big-ticket items that IndyCar allowed them to do every other year. So they've taken those big-ticket items off the list. All right, gonna let's see where are we at on the old clockety clock. We're a little bit past an hour, so cool there. Um, God, I think maybe an hour and a half worth of questions here. So I'm gonna finish that, and then that means uh, it'll be six twenty-ish p.m., six thirty, and then I can stop, and my wife and I can go and enjoy some more episodes. The new season of The Crown, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Seen all of them. Love it. Um, Noah Richardson or Roa Richardson. However you prefer. Space, SpaceX? Sure. Spa, Spake, SpaceX launched their first official crewed mission to the International Space Station last Sunday. That's a sentence with a lot of S's in it. It came to my attention that All-American Racers helped design the landing legs for the Falcon 9 first stage booster. Do you know of any other non-motorsports-related projects that IndyCar teams had a hand in? Non-motorsports-related. I'm sure many. I I wish some were coming to mind. Um, I know that in some instances, and you said motorsports, so I'm sticking to that, uh, there are certainly some projects that teams work with auto manufacturers on so away from the racetrack but actual production based items um testing of such things maybe rapid prototyping uh of such things manufacturing of items uh so yeah um i know of a couple that go on right now in indycar i won't mention the team's names because they haven't mentioned it but i am aware uh in some instances where yes there are relationships that extend beyond the racetrack, and those are also ways to supplement income. Uh, Rob Ball and Kevin Fred Arico got a topic here that I'm going to have to address pretty darn soon, knowing that this should be episode 982, I believe. Rob starts off by saying MP with the 1,000th episode of the Marshall Pro Podcast coming soon. If you had any thoughts and ideas on the special occasion, possibly having Mario Andretti on since he was on the first ever episode or Mike Hull, since he's been on more than anyone else 
How about a fan vote or ideas from the fans? Hearing all the great questions every week makes me think that some of my fellow listeners may have some great ideas for it. I love your thinking here, Rob. I really do. So I think I'm going to lean in that direction. Mario had come to mind, obviously, being the guy who helped me launch this whole thing. Um, although I think I mentioned on my Weekend Sports Cars show, the first interview I did for the podcast wasn't the first episode that ran, but the very first one that I did was the beginning of January. So what, five months before everything kicked off uh, at the roar before the 24 with Porsche factory driver, Nick Tandy. So little meaningless factoid there. Uh, Mario came to mind, but I, I think since the primary shows that I do every week, the ones that are the, the core of everything we have are listener driven. I, I think I'm going to have to go with you here, Rob, and say, I need to put this out as a fan inspired fan. That's stupid. No one's a fan. Just we're all folks doing this thing that we like, but listener driven decision. And I'm probably going to hold the veto of that because if everyone votes for uh, Bodie McBoatface or Racy McRaceface, yeah, might be a little hard to track he or she down. But um, I, I like where you're going here. Kevin, by the way, says it should be Scott Pruitt as the guest. So the 1,000th episode can be hashtag Pruitt on Pruitt. Uh, it's a little creepy, Kev. We're not going for the hashtag Pruitt on Pruitt anytime. But um, the thought of having not my brother Scott as a guest, that's pretty fun. Um, but I do love the idea, Rob. I really do. So seeing as how we're probably going to get there, I don't know, before the end of the year, around the end of the year, beginning of next, whatever, I should probably start thinking about that and maybe start getting that question out and going here before too long. Uh, JJ Gertler, JJ Gertler says you get one meal flown in calorie free from any IndyCar track. It has to come from the at track facilities you don't get to go up the street to mug and bun. What food from what track? Let's see. So I'm sure many of you are all screaming Road America, whether it's a brat or a this or a that. Um, and I'm not saying those are that's a bad idea at all. Not at all. Um, here's what I can tell you was the greatest surprise, which is why it came to mind. It was at the Motegi finale. So that would have been what? End or so of 2011, I believe. The final IndyCar race at Motegi in Japan. And some of you may know, might have mentioned before, grew up with pretty significant Japanese influence uh, in my life. Um, Whether it was young students that stayed with us while going to school here or whatever else uh, from Japan. A guy who was kind of my second father, Japanese-American descent, their cuisine was often sprinkled with uh, uh, some sort of heritage-related items. Going to Japan, by no means an expert on anything, but at least not unfamiliar with a number of the tastes and whatnot. I didn't know what to expect in terms of what would be readily available, both at the track 
and when we got back to the hotel, but in particular at the track. So I know that, of course, from an American standpoint, we could mention uh, Road America for sure, Indy with the the Frisbee-sized pork tenderloin patties on buns and whatnot, right? So there's all these things. But I would just say the one thing that jumps out, JJ, because it was so unexpected, was there was this miniature food truck uh, behind the media center and behind uh, pit lane. And it had, I don't want to say it was just teriyaki flavored because it was something more than that, but it was in that range of teriyaki flavor uh, meat on a stick. So uh, chicken, I believe. I might have tried the beef. I don't know. But these things for two sticks, and they weren't giant, right? They're just kind of normal, normal size. For two of them. It was like 10 bucks. <laughs> and I can tell you for sure. Um, in 2011, I wasn't making a lot of money, man. So, and I certainly didn't have a lot of money to bring with me. But these things are so damn good. And so I, I was, it's one of those things where you really have to monitor yourself. Because you don't want to be the guy where when the people at the food truck see you start walking their way, they like kind of nod or kind of point to the person out of your periphery and it's security because they figure that you're just totally insane because you go there so often. So they've set up a bit of a trap for the next time you come over. Like those kinds of things going through my mind. Like, dude, these are so good and so unexpected that, and, but they're so damn expensive knowing that I had very little money to bring with me to begin with. I'm having to weigh the, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to be back here next. This might be the one and only time I'm, I'm ever at Motegi. So I may never have these again. And again, it's not just like, you know, Hey, we're going to dip some, uh, chicken into teriyaki and, and grill it. And then there again, whatever they did, unique, different, special, amazing brother. I must've gone there twice a day, maybe three times a day for the three days I was there. So Whatever that is, almost $100 in these little stupid things. But they were that amazing. So I don't know if they were calorie-free. I like that you've thrown that in. But that would be the at-track, quote, facility. That would be the thing. It was inside the the, the facility, even if it was driven in. Uh, that would be it. So Motegi, teriyaki-ish style, um, chicken on a stick, man. Ah, oh, crazy. So good. Uh, we're going to Northern Penguin 01 for the final question above the cut line. And let's see, what does that leave us with time at? Yeah, we'll be able to get to some overtime here. Um, if you were to pick three new car drivers to go on The Mass Singer, a show where celebrities sing in ridiculous costumes, and the judges try to guess who they are, who would go and what would their costume be? Oh, man. Thank you, Northern Penguin 01. This is the question that I didn't know I needed. Uh, huh. Well, number one, all right, we're talking singer, not dancer. So that strips some, uh, strips some names from this for sure. Um, do we, ha well, let me see. Let me reread drivers. All right. You said drivers. You didn't say whether they're current though. So I'm, uh, I'm looking for an option here. Uh, 
Simon Pagano, I'll go with first. He's got a bit of an ego, definitely showy, right? That there are few drivers that I can think of who love having their picture taken, being on camera. There are few people who love attention from cameras more than Simon Pagano. So, although he'd be hidden and masked, uh, I think him for sure. And what would be funny is him trying to mask his voice. I know that they already do the little voice modulation thing, but him trying to hide the uh, Jean Girard, Ricky Bobby, I'm coming to get you voice, that would be hilarious. So it'd be him for sure. What would he be dressed as? Probably a giant version of his dog, Norman. Like, really disturbing. It might also make it too easy to pick him if you knew who he was. Uh, but I'll go. we'll go there for one. Um, who else do we throw in? Ed Carpenter, for sure. Uh, and again, it might be a little on the nose with the U.S. Space Force sponsorship, which is still the all-time funniest thing. It'd be him dressed up as kind of a, a spaceman, NASA, moon man kind of thing, right? Um, the fact that, although I refer to him lovingly as Ed Carpenter, which is just meant to be irony because he doesn't have a drop of funk in his body, the thought of Ed trying to sing... And not just sing like a Sinatra, start spreading the news, but like some, like Ed as a spaceman, but singing like Mary J. Blige. Hashtag. I mean, that's, that's the best ever. I think it doesn't get any better than that because there's so many things conflicting here. Uh, a spaceman person singing Mary J. Blige. Um, yeah, uh, Ed Carpenter getting crunk. <laughs> ah, I love Ed. Seriously, I love that guy. He's the best. Uh, all right, where do we go for the third and final? I don't know why it came to mind. Couldn't tell you if he could sing, but I think he'd give it a try. Like this guy is, he's a goa. He, he is certainly a, a, a trier supreme. And I don't know why, but he'd be dressed in some sort of big floppy-eared dog costume. No idea why any of these things are popping in my head. It'd be Scott McLaughlin. And I think of the three, he'd win. Just because the guy seems to be able to do everything very well. Uh, So I can't tell you if he could sing, but I just have a feeling he could sing better than Simon and Ed. Why is he in a big floppy dog suit? Couldn't tell you. But yeah, uh, there you go, Northern Penguin 01. Uh, (laughs) All right, thank you. If y'all want to check out now, that is the primary show we have for you. Brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets, USA, and absolutely 100% dedicated to our friends Lynn Henderson-Gale and her husband Jim Gale, who we lost uh, just a little over a week ago. Um, Thank you. And if you want to stay a little bit longer... Well, we got uh, we got some more questions here to get to. Uh, where are we going to go first? Uh, Mark Fleetwood. Hey, Marshall. Happy early holiday season to you and Chabrell. Hope it's peaceful and quiet. I do too, Mark. While we've been recording, she just sent me a link 
to a restaurant that we are going to sample uh, here in the coming days um, where, yeah, uh, soul food tends has been our newer era kind of holiday jam. So I think we're going to try a new place. And if we like it, then order some, get something ready for uh, Thanksgiving. And also some sort of quadruple vegan place for her. Um, and yeah, so there you go. Uh, let's see. You say, since you have a beard, I always figured you appreciate history. Well, that's, I love the connotation there, Mark. I'll go with it. It says, when you look back on motorsports journalism, who are the Mount Rushmore and why? Did any of them write good books? Um, might be a neat Christmas gift idea. Huh. Well, the one y'all have probably heard me mention many times when asked this question, my favorite writer of the motor racing is a gentleman by the name of Nigel Roebuck from the United Kingdom. And I came to read Nigel's work in Autosport in the mid-1980s, and his fifth column, as it was called, uh, on top of his Formula One race reports. But his just his writing, his writing style, his passions, his prejudices for certain drivers or teams or against certain drivers and teams, the quality of his writing, uh, just this is someone who was self-possessed. There are many excellent journalists, without a doubt, and the quality of their writing is insane. Ask to name a couple of defining characteristics of the writer, journalist, whatever. In many instances, I find it hard to do so because while the words on the page land beautifully and are technically excellent, don't actually get much of a feel for who you're reading. The person, uh, they're just words. Like you could change the attribution to one of 50 different names, might not really register with you. So I know that in proper journalism, and I don't consider what I do in motor racing journalism to fall into that category, right? This isn't politics. This isn't society. This isn't arts. It's I figure that if someone's going to take me there, wherever there is, I want to see it through their lens, not a neutral lens. This isn't necessarily a game of invisibility. Person started on pole position, person led the race, another person passed them, and then another person won. You go, all right, cool, thanks. That's a black and white zeros and ones technical thing all of it factually perfect but uh i'm not going to remember it and it did nothing to hold my attention it was just a dry forgettable thing i'm not saying i want stuff that's dripping mark with too much uh hashtag me personally input uh, and influence but if i'm going to join in on somebody's reporting writing and do that for however many years. I want to feel like I know that man or that woman. So 
Nigel really was the first for me in that regard who jumped out and uh, I had such had and have such a rabid fandom for him, uh, his way of writing, way of thinking, way of interacting with drivers, the relationships that he built uh, with many drivers. Um, I mean, uh, that Mount Rushmore, he, he stands atop that one uh, by a, a decent margin and he's stands atop it, which would be great. So that'll be a good thing for him. Cause uh, he's maybe five foot seven on a good day or six. I don't know. Uh, there are many others who I appreciate. Uh, Jonathan Ingram is one whose work I've read for a long time and love. And I'm talking racing, not so much automotive. There are, uh, John Phillips, if we're talking in the automotive world, uh, <laughs> one of the biggest crushing things that happened in the past year is his monthly column in Car and Driver went away. Uh, no disrespect to anyone, it was the primary reason that I subscribed to it. And once I was done reading not only his column, but that whatever monthly issue I would, because it was not bound super heavily, uh, grab all the pages in my left hand before his column and rip them from the magazine. And that then made it much easier to pull John's column from the remaining piece of the magazine cleanly instead of having to try and fold it, pull the magazine open and get a razor blade and cut it out. Just found that to be the easiest thing. So I have a nice stack of John Phillips columns because it's the most talented writer I've just about ever come across. Uh, but we're talking specifics with racing. Yeah. Um, Nigel has written many, 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 many books. Uh, please dive in to those because they're going to make you very happy. Um, Mount Rushmore. Robin Miller, easily. Uh, yeah. What Nigel was to me as a kid, a teen, like barely, you know, just into high school, sophomore, freshman, whatever. What Nigel was for me for that really impressionable era of my life and who's remained my favorite ever since. Robin was, um, I don't remember the exact point, but definitely over the last 15 years or have, however long it is that he and I have worked together um, since we get, since we are as close as we are, he's been a crazy influence. And one of my favorites, truly, reading a, a reading a Robin Miller column, especially one where he's got a slight axe to grind, if not big axe to grind, uh, or he wants to lavish someone with love and praise or whatever. When Robin is working from a place of passion, uh, you're not. I'm not going to find anything better. Um, I will tell you that for many years. I was a big fan of Jeff Olson's writing by saying for many years, that is not a negative statement about his writing today. It's just a case of Jeff was a frontline reporter journalist for many, many years, read his work on racer.com back in the day and wherever else back in the day. 
hasn't been so much of Jeff's story in recent years. Usually when I read something from Jeff, it's in the form of a IMSA newswire story over the last two years, three years, whatever. But uh, he is a very talented writer. Um, my friend David Malsher, who I worked with for however many years, um, he wrote Will Powers with Will Power. I don't remember, I don't know how to. My brain is shutting down on me. Whether it's a biography, autobiography, whatever, whatever it is, uh, he and Will Power collaborated on Will's book. It's the only one that I know of from David, uh, but he is. I hate him with a passion. <laughs> because of the talent he possesses that I do not. Um, Jeff Olson, by the way, I believe wrote, uh, worked, now, and I'm sorry, whether it was, I don't think he did it on his own. I think he did it with Andy Halbury. Uh, whatever the most recent Dan Weldon Lionheart book, um, I believe they did together. Uh, so there's something there to purchase for sure. Um, there's more. I have offered this excuse before. It is real. Did I mention David Phillips? I love me some David Phillips. Uh, he's written at least one book that I know of, if not more. Uh, Pete Lyons is another. Sorry, a lot of these things are now flashing in my brain. Um, it's an excuse. It's a valid excuse, but it's an excuse nonetheless. Uh, when we moved here to where we are, which is right across from hospital that we frequent, um, it was meant to be a one-year thing. So I took all my racing books, except for a, the, a small amount that I wanted to read, and they've all been sitting in storage. So normally, I would have all of them sitting out on bookshelves, and I would turn my head to the right and rattle off a ton of things. Unfortunately, having not seen them for more than a year, I'm forgetting some names of authors and journalists that I should not mark. But hopefully, I've just given you some, and yeah... Uh, if you need any suggestions on great books, Christmas gifts, and whatnot, you can obviously visit our friends and show partners at torontomotorsports.com. I would suggest uh, maybe stopping first, though, because I don't know of uh, Derek at Toronto really being a big, big book inventory guy. Um, I would absolutely recommend going to our pal Paul Zimmerman, the Motorsport Collector in Downers Grove, Illinois. And yeah, he has them all. So the Motorsport Collector, I think it's just the motorsportcollector.com. Uh, I apologize if I'm forgetting the exact URL, but uh, go go look at Paul's site. Reach out to Paul. Give him a ring. Um, he will be able to help you with all the names that I mentioned and many more, I am sure. Okay, we're going to go to our pal Duncan Idaho and also Lynn, the IndyCar fan who's at Lynn, the Spurs fan uh, is a little bit conflicting uh, here. Uh, kidding aside, Duncan says, any updates on IndyCar iRacing for the 2020 offseason? Hashtag me personally. Each event should be separated into two races, competitive and Connor Daly's LCQ. Uh, whenever the competitive race gets to pick the next vehicle for the LCQ to drive, maximum schadenfreude encouraged. Uh, and then Lynn says, Marshall, do you think IndyCar will work with a game developer to create a new IndyCar game for game machines? I think that is a good way to attract younger viewers to the sport. Um, Lynn, I do. I think they should. Uh, will they? I don't know. Uh, this question has been asked for, what, more than a decade. Uh, the sentiment that you mentioned 
of it being a great way to attract new and younger audience. It's the same exact sentiment that's been spoken for more than a decade or however long. Nothing's been done. So this is one of those, boy, everyone agrees it makes sense, but it never happens. So uh, maybe there are people who believe it doesn't make sense because if kind of sort of everybody agrees, but there's no action, I just, I don't know. I don't get it. So I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm going to take another quick sip of coffee. Uh, Duncan. Um, I've heard nothing about there being a iRacing off-season championship like the one we had during the shutdown. I would be just pulling stuff out of my backside in terms of answers. Might be right, might be wrong, I don't know. Uh, I did ask a couple weeks ago and was given a very non-answer answer of, well, you know, we'll look and we'll evaluate and who knows, but uh, it didn't seem that likely. I wonder if the fact that IndyCar just ended its season, what, we'll just roughly say the end of October, you know, giving us not a lot of time like they normally have for the, the quote, off season. Part of me wonders if uh, teams and or drivers, because you can't really do it if you don't have all the drivers buying in, um, wonder if there were questions asked as to whether drivers would all be down with this and they got too many no's. Uh, it wasn't a giant amount last weekend, by the way, but we are having to acknowledge that for some IndyCar drivers, their season extended halfway through November. Uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, congratulations, by the way, on winning overall Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring. Alex Rossi, Simon Pagano, uh, Sebastian Bourdais. I might be forgetting one or two others. I don't know. Colton Herta. Um, all of a sudden, that's what, 25% of the field or close to 20 to 25% who might be feeling like, hey, <laughs> got six weeks before the new year is here. Uh, and I know this is a wacky year and we got a late start, but the thought of filling it with iRacing when all we really want to do is just like slow down because we're kicking right back up in January, I think that might might be the reason why there hasn't been a announcement of anything, but we'll see. Uh, Sean Starkey, awesome to hear about your wife's successes. We're all behind you both. Oh, thanks, Sean. Says Mark Andretti finished 20th in the final standings. I love this question. But he was not in the top 22 in regards to leader circle points. Uh, which cars finished better than the 98 in regards to the leader circle program, but worse in the driver's point standing? Well, you mentioned cars. Um... Cars don't finish in the driver's point standing, so I'm not trying to be a, a pedantic, but just pointing that out there. Um, but the main issue here, if we're talking who finished ahead or behind, there were no full-time drivers that finished behind Marco, and yet, um, yeah, so there's nothing there. I mean, basically what happened is, in terms of entries, uh, we had the number 20, we had two split entry cars that were performing poorly in the leader circle and needed a bit of a bump to be safe and clear. And because those were part-time drivers in those two entries, that being the number 20 Ed Carpenter racing Chevy split between Connor Daly and Ed Carpenter 
in the number 14 AJ Foyt racing Chevy split between Sebastian Bourdais for the last, what, two, three, Dalton Kellett, Tony Kanon. Uh, we had a situation where, you know, again, Tony did, uh, what was it? Six races, five, six races. So obviously not enough races to accrue enough points to finish ahead of Marco who did the full year. Uh, Ed did the same amount. Uh, what was it? Six races, I think. Uh, so same thing. Uh, he finished behind Marco, but this is on six races instead of 14. Uh, Dalton did, you know, uh, whatever, seven, eight. So basically, uh, while the points for the car are what ultimately matter for where you finish in the leader circle, you had all the drivers in question that finished behind Marco in the driver's championship um, by chance uh, were able to put up enough points, particularly in rallying towards the end of the season, to make sure that the entry, no matter who all drove it, had enough quality points-paying finishes to be ahead of Marco in the million-dollar leader circle uh, jamboree. So, yeah, Seb finishing fourth at St. Petersburg was huge. So it actually jumped uh, his entry up to 20th, the 14 car up to 20th from 20. You know what? I'm not even remembering what the mix was. Uh, But long story short, everybody... In terms of the car, the two cars that finished directly ahead of Marco in the leader circle, uh, all those drivers are behind him in points because they were partial season people. Uh, partial season people. That sounds weird coming off my face. Um, you know what? We got a couple more here, and then I'm going to say good night. Yeah, actually, we're a little bit past an hour and a half now, so let me pick one or two, and then we're going to say goodbye. Our good pal, John Wojnar. And John, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to a lot of your questions in recent weeks. Uh, He is a part of this funny, awesome, amazing group of listeners who've dubbed themselves the Prue Day, P-R-U-E, like my last name, um, which is modeled off of my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day. And so he opens up uh, with his question to be read in the voice, I can't do it, of Big E. Now, former member of the New Day. Ah, Marshall Pruitt, don't you dare be sour. Clap for another episode of the world-famous listener Q&A and feel the power. Says, hope all's going good, man. Question with the WWE Survivor Series coming up this weekend. Who, 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 who from the IndyCar field would you select for a traditional five-on-five Survivor tag team match and who wins? As always, praying for you and your wife. Five on five. So I got to. All right. Um, let's see. Did you mention I'm in there or just five? No. So it's five drivers on five drivers. All right. Uh, I'm going with. I'm going with the big guys versus what might be the kind of Lucha Libre, smaller aerial flying around, flipping around group. So it'd be the trees. We'd have five trees, so it'd be Joseph, and not all of them are like tall, tall, but, you know, compared to the ones who aren't. Uh, Joseph Newgarden, for sure. Graham Rahal, so that's two. Uh, Alexander Rossi, that's three. Ryan Hunteray, that's four. And uh, Renus VK, so that's five. Newgarden, Rahal, Rossi, Rie. So that's coincidentally four Americans plus the Dutchie. Uh, our man from the land of nevers, the, the the land of nevers and neithers, 
Netherlands, Renus VK. So I like that. So those are the trees. Those are the tall ones. Uh, then we got the uh, beating the heck out of your knees group. So that's going to be Takuma Sato. Uh, where are we going? Connor Daly. He's no longer in the series, but he competed this year, so we're going to go with him. Zach Veach, so that's three. Uh, who else? Santino Ferrucci, for sure. Uh, and Felix Rosenquist, the fifth, right? Um, that's just going to be funny. Like, it's just funny. So who's going to win? Well, I'll just say this out loud, and there's a little bit of American pride in here, and I realize that there's Americans on both sides of this. But uh, big athletic kid, Joseph Newgarden. Big athletic kid, Graham Ray Hall. Uh, taller athletic kid, Alexander Rossi. Definitely taller and bigger and athletic man in Ryan Hunter Ray. And then he's a kid, but also, I mean, this if he keeps growing, like he might end up being the tallest kid in IndyCar, and he's not small. Renus VK. I mean, come on. They're going to just slap the shit out of the other ones, right? Like Sato, Connor, you're not going to slap around. He's he's going to wear you out pretty good. But Veach, you know, lover, definitely not a fighter. Uh, Ferrucci, he, I might have misplaced him. He might be the manager, the kind of heel guy chomping on the cigar and you know, uh, uh, tripping the one of the guys when the ref isn't looking and you know throwing a, a steel chair into the cage for one of his guys to use maybe he's a wrestler manager but he's definitely a heel for sure because again that's the role that he plays so uh there you go john i hope that was fun thank you to you and the uh, prude day you guys are so funny um let's see where do we go rishi asked a question about sato's new engineer send that one back in again um, I know I said I'm going to take one or two more, but I feel like I can knock a couple of these out quickly. Uh, Lynn, the IndyCar fan again. Marshall, second request. I really like the Harvest Grand Prix idea. Do you ever see IndyCar ending the season on their home track? Uh, I actually answered this already, Lynn. So you just must have, must have missed it the first time around. Uh, Sean Lee, forgetting the standing starts. Let's do full Lamont starts uh, since LEDs are dead and gone. Could we get large car number decals or better yet, driver initials? on the car given the ever-changing liveries and the 14 pink cars in the field i think so how about flags how about big flags that stick out from the cockpit um right i mean why not do that i mean if everyone has to use them the in theory the aerodynamic penalty is the same so yeah big kind of flexible but not too flexible poles uh sticking out of the cockpit these are bolted in place obviously the drivers and holding on to them uh, or maybe it mounts directly into the aero screen. I'm not sure. But a, just a big-ass flag that flies like five feet above the car. I don't know. Is five feet enough? Ten? I don't know. You tell me. And I'm not sure what size is the flag. Uh, two feet tall by three feet long, maybe. Is that enough? Bigger? I don't know. Um, that has the car number on it and their initial. Um, maybe there's social media handles, right? At so-and-so and whatever, whatever. Um, I mean, do we go further? For the married drivers, do they, we have pictures of their family on it and their kids' names and all that and little messages? For the ones who are single, do we have, I don't know, uh, some sort of swipe left, swipe right type dating app info, long walks on the beach, loves to cook in the nude, whatever it might be? I don't know. Um, I'm thinking we could do some fun stuff here for sure, Sean. So, 
yeah, I think we've got to develop this one. It's a winning, losing idea. Yet again, one of the specialties of yours truly. Uh, ben Cohen, hope you're feeling back to almost normal. Ah, like that's going to happen. Thank you, Ben. Uh, other than Meyershank Racing, do you know of any teams that may be looking at running an additional car from multiple races other than the 500? I do, Ben. I'm just not able to talk about it yet. So of the things I'm staring at in front of me for phone calls to make and questions to ask, uh, that's one where I'm hoping to get an update sometime soon and hopefully get a green light to talk about that. Uh, so the last question is going to go to our pal Robbie Berggren. says, hi, Marshall. Last week's question about Bobby Rahal and Michael Andretti got me thinking. If you brought 1992 Bobby and Michael to today and let them loose for five years, who finishes ahead of whom in the championship more often? I think Michael wins more often because the cars aren't as fragile today. So Michael doesn't lose as many good results to poor reliability. Uh, closes by saying, praying for you and your wife as always. Thank you, Robbie. Yeah, I, again, if we're taking 92 Bobby and 92 Michael, um, Bobby's, what, still six years away from retiring? So not done by any means. Uh, very effective, by the way, uh, championship winning Bobby Rahal there too. Um, still. Uh, and I love Bobby and we're very good friends, but I still just would have to say, and I'm sure he will disagree and light me up next time I see him. But if I'm having to put my money on the two of them, uh, I'm going with Michael. Uh, I had a friend of mine reach out who also listens to the podcast and won't mention him by name or the driver that he referenced by name because this wasn't uh, for public communication. But having listened to last week's episode, where the question of which one would you go with, Bobby or Michael, and who would be the more devastating whatnot, I said Michael all day long. Uh, you know, 92 Michael Andretti dropped into 2020 IndyCar. Uh, I mean, he's one of your top two or three championship favorites, for sure. Uh, if not the champion, uh, he's that good, was that good, without a doubt. Um this friend of mine who heard that and just sent a little note saying, you know, amen, mentioned that one of the IndyCar drivers that he worked with who was is considered a legend, like legend, uh, that he rated Michael. And, com- and this driver obviously competed directly against Michael, rated him as just off the charts, inconceivable how fast and good he is. So... There are many others that did too. So, yeah, uh, if we could rerun Michael's career and fortune was a bit kinder, some different decisions were made, who knows if he's with a different team. I mean, picture Michael at Roger Penske's for the bulk of his career. (laughs) Right? Uh, In that place, knowing how it was run, how individuality was respected, but you are going to conform with the Penske way more than you would be asked to at any other team. Michael fully refined as a young driver and then staying with Roger for 15 years, 20, however many years it was. Um, you know, this is no disrespect to AJ Foyt or Scott Dixon, but I could easily imagine we're talking about a 10 time IndyCar champion. 12-time IndyCar champion. Just everyone else go home. 
Like this, this is just not even funny. Um, that didn't happen. He wasn't there. So it's just one of those bench racing items. But um, imagine if Michael early in his career, if not right out of the gate within the first couple of years by 85, 86, whatever it is, is signed up by Roger. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it wouldn't even be fair. That's how talented that guy was. So thanks, Robbie. Thanks for the questions, everybody. Um, Mrs. Gale, nothing but love to you, for you, for thinking about you. Can't even, uh, can't even begin to imagine. I don't want to imagine. I, I just don't want to put myself in the headspace of what it's like to lose the person you have dedicated your life to. So from all of us here at our podcast, I just want to say thank you to you and you have much bigger things going on in your life and will for a long time, but I hope you get to listen if it helps. And if you want to send in however many questions, absolutely love to answer them. Uh, and if you got any guest requests, let me know. I mean, that's the fun thing about this being our show. We make it up. It's comprised of your questions, the folks that I think you would want to hear from, our guests. Some uh, Every couple months I reach out saying, hey, no idea who to ask, you tell me. Um, we make all this stuff up for ourselves. So please let me know whatever we might do for you to make your life a little bit better today and for however long into the future. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is The Week in IndyCar and our listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'll speak to you here shortly with Felix Rosenquist, our guest, and then we'll do part two a little bit later in the week. Thank you for listening.